and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, the place where leading authors reveal how they unlock their creative process. I'm Katie Brand and I'm joined by an author who lives and breathes maths. As well as teaching it and explaining conundrums on TV and radio, he performs stand-up, tackling subjects such as spreadsheets, barcodes and number theory. His latest book, Humble Pie, explores what happens when maths goes wrong in everyday life, with very funny but sometimes tragic consequences. It's Matt Parker. Matt, welcome. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Now, as part of this podcast, authors bring along a handful of objects that have inspired their work. Matt has kindly brought objects including some aircraft bolts, a tame Impala album and a special mug with a puzzle on it. But before we get onto your objects, Matt, can you tell us just a little bit more about this book, Humble Pie, and what led you to write it? My previous book was called Things to Make and Do in the Fourth Dimension, and it was very, very hands-on maths. But when I came back to Penguin for the second book, they were like, why should we publish a maths book? What kind of an audience are we going to reach, basically? And so I said, well, what if I did a book about when maths has gone wrong? Mm -hmm. Because people enjoy reading about disasters. Yeah, people love a disaster. As long as they're not living in it at the time, it's great. And so... (laughs) It makes you feel more grateful about your life now, doesn't it? It's true. It can help, you know, put what's happening now in context in the bigger scheme of things going wrong. I then uh, started scouring for examples of maths mistakes across different areas where maths is applied. I think a lot of people have a vague sense that maths is very useful, but I mean, it underpins modern society to an incredible extent. And mm-hmm. so I thought by looking at where it breaks down, it gives us a little insight into how much maths is going on you know, behind the scenes. And do you think we're more reliant on maths now than ever in human history? I would say yes. Even just like engineering, like the buildings we see now in a city, these massive glass and metal constructions. There's no way we could build those if we couldn't do the calculations to check they would work first. Because you can't just eyeball that and go, yeah, I reckon that'll stand up. You also can't build a practice one. See, exactly. Yeah, you can't do it. You you can try a scale model. That's not going to work. Yeah. (laughs) You can't build a full building somewhere else and just see if it stands up. (laughs) See how long it lasts. Exactly. I love the story, actually. You talk about the the very earliest maths and the very earliest writing. In fact, they're the same thing, aren't they? Because I've read about that before in the context of writing in what is now Iraq. I think a man called Kushim. Yes, Kushim. Yes. That you say in the book that he's probably also the first human that we know the name of. It's not an emperor or a king, it's an accountant. It's an accountant. I love So that. good. My accountant would love that. <laughs> this is it, right? And I was amazed when I found that because they're kind of famous in history circles as being the first human who we know the name that they would have used at the time, which is great. But then when I was kind of looking into this, I was like, well, actually, not only were they an accountant, right, but they were making mass mistakes, keeping track of the stock levels in what seems to be a warehouse for making beer. Mm -hmm. And if there's two things that brought (laughs) modern society together, right, that made humans live in clumps, it was, you know, brewing beer and doing mathematics. Yes. And And also I feel that the third point in the triangulation is making mistakes. Exactly. Beer, maths and mistakes seem to go together quite well. Beer has been helping us make mistakes ever (laughs) since. (laughs) It's good to know for as long as there has been accountants, there have also been mistakes. And the mistakes are classic ones. Like it's they copied a one instead of a ten, that kind of thing. Like Mm -hmm. mistakes we've all made, humans have been making them for millennia and we will keep making them. I'm terrible at maths, but I love maths. I'm fascinated by it. I went to a slightly strange convent school till I was eight 
pre-national curriculum and we didn't do any maths at all. The nuns <laughs> didn't wow. think maths was important. And it wasn't until I changed schools that my, the teachers phoned my parents. The national curriculum came in around that time and they said, Katie hasn't done any maths. So I had to start again. So I was always behind. It's an issue lots of people have when they tell themselves or people in their family say, well, no one in this family is good at maths. But you don't really know. I mean, you no, might you not be. I might not be. I might be brilliant. But this is just it because <laughs> the cheat code to learning mathematics is starting already keen and excited. And so if you've missed it until you're eight, the trouble with mathematics is once you get behind, it's really hard to catch up. So my dad's an accountant and my mum's a librarian, right? So I kind of, I was wow. do, doing sums at home before I went to school. Yeah. And I was already convinced that I enjoyed doing this. And that makes such a difference. So it's not that I was better at mathematics. It's just that I didn't think I'd be bad at it. And there's a common misconception that mathematicians are people who find maths easy. And don't get me wrong, you know, you, people can have propensities for different things. However, humans are very good at learning mathematics, but we're very bad at doing it initially. And when you look at a mathematician, they're not someone who necessarily finds it easy. They're someone who enjoys how difficult it is. And that's the big secret in maths, right? But once you get behind, particularly um, teenagers, when they look around and see their peers seemingly much better at maths, they go, oh, well, I must just be bad at it, right? And that, that, that's a little feedback cycle. And so a lot of people convince themselves they're not good at it. And I think it's not that bad. Just try a little bit of fun maths, uh, yeah. do some puzzles, see how it goes. Well, let's go to your first object now. It's a set of aircraft bolts. Oh, yes, I've got them here. Oh, here they are. Oh, yeah. I see. Wow, they're quite small. They are quite small. But I thought they were going to be like huge, chunky things. No, they're tiny. Oh they're maybe, what, three don't tell me or those four three, centimetres? They don't hold the wing on. Just They hold the windshield on, <laughs> okay. would you believe? So I'll tell you what, I'll give you these two. I've got three here, but I'll, I'll pass two over initially. And when we were taking photos of these earlier, the photographer was like, wait, are they different? Right? And I was like, yes. no, th these are three different bolts. You've got a 7D and an uh -huh. 8C. Okay. And the the HC is ever so slightly longer. I've literally got them probably a centimetre apart in my palm. And at this point, just from the naked eye, I can't really see a difference. If I just glanced at these, I'd assume they were the same. See, exactly. And that's why I bought them. Because if I roll them together so they're side by side, I can now see... Now, and also because I've been told that one is slightly bigger yeah, than the other. Yeah. And one's slightly thicker. So yes. the, um, the 7D is, is like two thirds of a millimetre wider than the other one. So mm -hmm. they're dangerously close to each other. And anyone who's ever put together a reasonably complicated piece of flat pack furniture, which I love doing, but however, I am militant about separating all the bolts precisely at the beginning. Do you categorise them all yes, first? Yes, I do. You've got to. You've and got I to... get very upset if the dog walks through them. You've got to arrange them the same way they're laid out in the, in the manual as yes. well. So they're in the perfect art. Yes. Anyway, so, well, someone didn't do that when okay. they were replacing a windshield on a 111 aircraft. Now, it's bad enough if you don't do that on a wardrobe. Yeah, this, but is, this... this is an aircraft. And I read the story where this happened. There was this aircraft in Birmingham, and it was meant to be flying off to Malaga like a couple of days later. And the crew who were meant to be replacing the windshield didn't make it in overnight. And so the shift maintenance manager was like, oh... If it's not done, it's going to be knock-on delays and we're already behind. And he's like, oh, I used to, I've done these a couple of years ago. How hard can it be? And he flicks <laughs> through the manual and goes, okay, I reckon I can do this. And then, so so they do it. And this, there's this almost comical series of events of things going wrong. 
But the main thing that went wrong was after they'd taken off the windshield and they'd gotten the old bolts out and they're like, oh, we better replace these. They go to the store and instead of looking up what part it is, they go through the different containers and compare them like you were doing a second ago. And they had taken out the 7D and they flicked through and they correctly identified it as a 7D, but they were out of the parts. And so they had to drive to this different storeroom where... it. And later on, when we looked into it, when there was an investigation, bits were mislabeled, things were missing. There was only one light source. And, and this happened, was all in the middle of the night. In the middle of the night. It's three in the morning. And he it was raining. And you imagine this poor guy driving across Birmingham Airport. And he ends up getting the wrong bolts. And he kind of eyeballed it and went, these look about the same. And the problem now is we engineer things beyond tolerances that humans can easily detect. And so on one hand, this is quite a nice maths mistake because just the measurements were wrong he got the wrong bolt it's also an interesting part of how now we use maths to go beyond what humans could just do naturally sadly through a series of more unfortunate mistakes they put the wrong bolts in the aircraft and when it took off once it reached cruising altitude the window blew out like oh there's the wrong there's like about 90 of the wrong bolts the window blew out the pilot got sucked out the window and so as the staff are coming back into the flight deck because they heard this noise and everything went misty as it's depressurizing. They saw the pilot going out the window and managed to grab their legs. And on the way out, the pilot knocked off the autopilot. It's just incredible. <laughs> and so the co-pilot's frantically trying to get the aircraft back under control. The, the actual pilot is now outside the plane. They held their legs for the 20 minutes it took to land the aircraft. And unbelievably, the pilot survived like That's just, it's just incredible. And they went back, they, they recovered, went back to being a pilot. Just absolutely phenomenal. And then when they looked, they did the investigation later, they found out that they'd merely got the wrong bolts. And the reason I've got the, the third bolt here is then they realised that the maintenance manager had taken out the seven Ds, accidentally put in eight Cs, but the aircraft wasn't meant to use either of those. The aircraft was actually meant to use an 8D, which is the one I'm holding over here. Oh so there's God. the 8D, if you want to add that to the pile. And it had previously already had the wrong bolts put into the window. There's less than a millimetre in it, really. It's, it's, it's safe. So while this story was a great example of, of mass mistakes and how we have systems to prevent mistakes and how they go wrong and all these things, I was like, well, how hard was it? And so I was like, I'm going to find some bolts. And they've come from three separate suppliers. Mm. If you're not registered, it's very hard to buy aircraft-rated parts on the internet. But I finally <laughs> got all three. I had to get a friend to help me who's like a glider pilot. And I got them and I had them on my desk and I was comparing them and I wanted to get a feel for it. And then they just kind of sat on my desk. And I will have a lot of like um, fidgety toys mm. when I'm writing. And so these, I got them quite early on when I was researching the book and they sat there ever since and they're the ones on my desk. And so I would occasionally just play with them and then, you know, periodically look down at what I was fidgeting with and be reminded of just how similar they are. The consequences now, as you've described them, are of such magnitude. I'm sort of slightly terrified of ever getting on a plane again. Well, I kind of want to emphasise that aviation is very good at having systems that stop mistakes. There's so much thought put into aviation to keep it safe it's amazing how safe it, it goes wrong occasionally of course but it's incredible how safe it is where do you find all these stories so it was a combination of chatting to people who had mentioned things and i read a lot of weird websites and the internet and watch youtube and i was just logging all these ideas but also 
what I need to be careful about and what can very easily happen in a nonfiction book is it can end up just being a summary of what's already on the internet. Right. And so I did then for all these stories, I then went and found often not online or hard to get like the accident reports and read around them to find all the extra information. So I wasn't just retelling the version that's out there. And I spoke to a lot of experts, often off the record, more often than not, actually, to mm. find out things that, you know, people weren't aware of and mistakes I've made and things I've done. And so once I've kind of got the skeleton together, it's a case of then going, right, what can I bring to this area that people don't already know or couldn't find even if they were searching themselves online? Yeah, and you've absolutely done that. I mean, there's a massive array of stories from all across different sectors. There's a fascinating chapter about calendars, how over time and history humans have coped with the fact that we want, as you put it, the seasons to match roughly with what we're used to, but the solar system doesn't quite play nicely in that way. The universe is not kind. But humans like things to be neat and ordered. We want midday to be in the middle of the day. And we want the year to be a whole number of days. But there's no reason why the rate at which the Earth spins should at all match the time it takes the Earth to go around the sun. But we try and make it fit. Because I knew you've got the Julian calendar where to try and fix that mismatch, you put in an extra leap day every four years because it's about 365 and a quarter days per cycle of the Earth around the sun. And Julius Caesar was like, right, we're going to do this. The Julian solution worked for a very long time, but it was still slightly off. And so the seasons were moving one day every 128 years, Hmm. which doesn't sound so bad. Every 128 years, summer would start a day later. But, you know, you give that a millennium or or so, and suddenly it's a noticeable drift. Yes. And, And the Catholic Church were like, you know, why is Jesus's birthday keeps moving? And so... Uh, The Pope's like, well, let's fix this. They got a mathematician to realise and then use their calendar that they were extending the year by uh, three days too many every 400 years. And so they decided to take those back out again. And so that's the Gregorian calendar. And different countries switched at different times. And the story I found, which I loved, was if you look up the London 1908 Olympics, and you can find all the shooting records, which I did, and the teams that were competing. And there was a Russian team that came over to join in the shooting but there's no record of them winning any medals whatsoever you're like why and they were quite good it turns out russia at the time was still on the julian calendar and england was on the gregorian calendar and they had a difference of uh 13 days at the time and so then the russian team showed up on what they thought was the 10th of july ready for the shooting in england it was already the 23rd of july and the shooting had finished i think that's just great like just i mean that's not that's not that long ago. No, it's not. I mean, it's barely a century of, ago. I mean, that's sort of almost within living memory. It's so crazy. And like within living memory, the US Air Force had uh, F-22 jets fly over the international dateline. There's a whole other story of how we use mass to keep that set. And we have time zones, which means you need a dateline. And they flew over the dateline and the date changed dramatically. And their navigation systems on six F-22s, state-of-the-art militaries, just all went down. Their systems crashed. Mm. There are over one million lines of code in these things. None of those lines of code said what the computers should do if the date suddenly changes. And so they all went down. Because they could never get any more, they had to fly following their refueling aircraft back. They were going from Hawaii to Japan. They had to fly back to Japan, right? And that's I love we- that. They just basically followed, in aircraft terms, a kind of donkey and cart. 
back. Exactly that. You know, they, they had a group to... of Lamborghinis <laughs> driving Humbly after a donkey a cup, it, yeah. with a man holding a compass, <laughs> essentially. This, basically, this way, everyone, come on. <laughs> yeah. We'll crawl back. Um, that's hilarious. When you're writing about maths, do you think you use a different part of your brain to when you're doing maths, solving maths problems? Does it feel different? It's still that process of logically solving problems. Structuring it to get across a bigger point feels the same to me as playing around with a math problem. Mm. I think more more people do more mathematical thinking than they appreciate just because it's not necessarily involving numbers. When I'm writing, if I'm writing, you know, fiction or whatever, that there's a sense of balance to sentences, aren't there? You have a sort of internal sense of what an attractive sentence is. And I might add a word with one syllable to balance the sentence and things like that. So I can definitely, even though I'm not doing maths, I can feel that there's something something mathematical going on in terms of the beauty and structure of a sentence, a, a flow of words that just feels nice as you read it. I often think of it in terms of a fractal. And I, I need sentences of different lengths at different scales and the way the rhythm holds together. But I wonder how much is me genuinely approaching that in a mathematical way and how much is my brain just using mathematical analogies because that's how I'm used to thinking and that's what's what's mm. at hand. I wonder if you could take a piece of great fiction, I'm sure someone's done this, but convert it into some sort of mathematical... Well, iambic pentameter is essentially a mathematical structure, isn't it? Whether these things would cohere into some kind of very elegant piece of maths. If you're actually looking at what's going on, I know people have analysed different authors to look at the lengths of sentences or the types of words or the frequency distribution of what words. And, and the you, rhythm. And the rhythm, yeah. And you can mathematically try and tease these things apart. There's a lot of things where just because you can understand and analyse it using mathematics, which don't get me wrong, big fan, doesn't mean that people were using maths to do it in the first place. And so I'm no. always very curious to know... But whether there's an internal mathematics, yeah, exactly. something unconscious that is within us. A lot of my friends are physicists, and a big part of physics is that you look at the universe... And you go, okay, you know, there wasn't someone doing maths to make this, but there's a mathematical logic within it. Mm. And we can use maths to try and understand how this behaves. And that's true of so many areas. I think people have taken Bach and Mozart and transcribed them mathematically and found they do obey certain rules sometimes, mathematical rules of the universe. See, Bach is, you know, obviously uh, super massy. Interesting. I mean, actually, moving on to your next object is a piece of music. Oh, yes. Which is Currents by Tame Impala. What made you bring this along? I'm curious to know how many people write while listening to music. Do you have music on when you're writing? I used to when I wrote comedy sketches. I don't tend to now if I'm writing something a bit more involved because it uses... Every part of my brain, I I can't have it invaded in any way. But I certainly use music to relax afterwards. I'm the inverse of that. So if I'm writing stand-up or something comedy, I don't have music on. Mm -hmm. Often I'll be walking or doing something else. I find exercise or moving helps. But if I'm doing book writing or writing an article or something like that, I'll have music on. Right. And I will have quite a small pool of records and I will play them almost on repeat. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Currents by Tame Impala is one of my absolute favourites and often is kind of a start of the day album. And I don't mind lyrics. They don't throw me for some reason. I know that that throws a lot of people when they're listening to music if they're studying or um, writing. I find that 
fine, but I do tend to gravitate towards music where the lyrics are far less pronounced or important.、Mm-hmm. And the music gets more chaotic as the day goes on. I don't know if that's to just give me more energy. There's、oh, a band called the Sleigh Bells who do like noise. Pop, and I think there's a you know you've listened to the album over and over. There's a familiarity to it, so it kind of backgrounds a bit.、Mm. But I find it does it helps keep the energy up and keep me going. Yeah, definitely. Or certainly when I'm doing stand up, or or I just need a little boost, I can totally change my frame of mind by putting on a particular bit of music for sure. I mean, you can completely rewire your mood. I think if necessary, that I find that quite reassuring. If I bit of Jay Z or a bit of Beyonce, and I'll be ready for、You're、a ready gig. Ready to go. Yeah, yeah. It's the same thing for me, but I am.、Um, It's it's setting the mood and it's routine,、mm. which I like. But it, there's an interesting effect where if you've got like like the pre-show playlist, those songs are kind of ruined for the rest of your life. Oh, I know. <laughs> and you'll hear them in a different context and go, "I'm meant to be getting ready for something, right?" <laughs> Just so, a, a, a sudden flash of sick dread. Exactly. Will come across. And you,、yeah. writing to music isn't as bad, but it's they still jump out at me if、yes. I hear one of my writing songs in a different context. There's a thing I've、um, I read、uh, recently that sounded a bit hokey. I don't know about people using music frequencies to relax and listening to frequencies that resonate at the frequency of the universe. There's this whole online trend of really that is it 32 hertz or some. I don't want to prejudge, but yeah, that sounds pretty. And there's just it's you literally go on YouTube and there'll be like a, a track that's just 15 minutes of tone, that's just and some of them put this kind of oogly boogly whale music around it, but what's essentially just something going boo, and apparently it's meant to make your body resonate at the frequency of the universe and you、I、become quite calm. Been putting way too much effort into my YouTube videos. <laughs> Um, I can almost. I can feel the skepticism coming off you, but I know you're. You don't want to be cynical. Say, <laughs> that is not how it works. Oh damn!、Okay. However, <laughs> I'm not saying that listening to that frequency doesn't cause people to relax and focus.、Mm-hmm. I just think it's probably a different mechanism to them resonating at a <laughs> fundamental frequency of the universe. But there is a lot about resonance and frequencies in your book, which is real. There's all this stuff about bridges that I just didn't know about the way bridges resonate and how this can be a disaster if it all goes wrong、so、or, true. or right, depending on. And、how. that's the, res- the using resonate to mean something that really connects with you. Kind of came about in the 1970s. Once you look into the use of the word, before that it was much more scientific. Things would resonate. And what's interesting about the tone on YouTube is this is it's a weird mix of the two, where. Physics and in terms of music, resonance is when an object which easily vibrates at a certain frequency. You know, There's a hand wavy description. So if you've got like a guitar, and the strings are tightened until they vibrate at particular frequencies, and you'll often notice this if you've got a tone being played in a room, a guitar string will start to move if the right frequency is played.、Mm. And you get this with bridges and buildings where there's certain frequencies where they move really easily, and if you then apply that frequency to them, you're kind of Putting energy in at just the right rate that it builds instead of cancelling itself out in the system, and the classic analogy is pushing like a child on a swing, where if you push just randomly, you'll probably push them back as often as you push them forward, but if you push exactly when they're coming up, you know, down in their swing, and you match 
so you're putting in the energy at the same frequency that the system is moving at. It builds in the system. And when you say system, because people can envisage a child on a swing, that's a large object. Exactly. But is that an analogy for something that's happening to concrete on a molecular level? Is it things vibrating within the space in cells? It's actually the entire structure. Oh, okay. It's, and the reason it's so difficult is it depends how everything interacts. People now do a lot of mathematical analysis of things like a football stadium or a bridge or a building because they know humans are going to be in there, particularly a football stadium, because it'll be used for concerts and people will dance. And they've had problems where people have danced at a frequency which matches and the whole structure starts to move. And so and the Millennium Bridge is the famous example. Yes, which people call the Wobbly the Bridge. The Wobbly Bridge, mm. such a great name. Where the Wobbly Bridge was designed, we already knew when people walk, they're kind of stepping up and down and you get this frequency. And previous bridges had collapsed because people walked up and down at a resonant frequency of the bridge. The Millennium Bridge was a side-to-side -side vibration because when you walk, you do move side-to-side -side slightly. And there was this unfortunate feedback loop where the bridge would wobble slightly and cause people to match their walking to the wobbling. But when they matched their walking, they made the wobbling bigger, which made more people match it. And so you got this feedback loop. And they had to close it within two days. And just the pedestrians who were on there, they reckon about 20% of them ended up being synchronized to this frequency, caused the bridge to move about seven, seven, eight centimeters in each direction. And that was enough, not enough to, be, to damage it, but enough to be, you know, unwanted. And so they had to close it. And what they had to do then was try and change the structure as a whole so it no longer vibrated at those frequencies. And so they put in, like, things to damp that frequency. And it's basically a pendulum in a box or a piston that moves. And you attach these things, and they're designed to just absorb energy at that frequency. And so when they reopened it, they described it as, you know, the most passively damped structure in the world. And it's been fine since, for decades. Still called the Wobbly Bridge. It only wobbled for two days. That's on my Tinder profile. Passively damped. <laughs> passively damped, yeah. <laughs> the most passively damped structure in the world. But I love the one um, historically about um, some troops marching in step over a bridge that then led it to um, have problems because they were all in step. And actually... Um, if people go to the Albert Bridge in London, there's a sign, isn't there? Still, a still sign there. that says, "It says tr uh, troops must break step." Yes, I um, love it, but not break dance, as I no, uh, yeah, as yeah. I correctly note. <laughs> Very proud of myself. I can imagine day. really well drilled troops just not knowing what to what do, do? do? like you... the Ministry of Silly Walks exactly. or something like. Well, now the great example was a building in South Korea, where people evacuated the 38th floor of this 39-story building because they felt it moving. And when they got outside, there was no earthquake or anything. And in the investigation they found, there was an exercise class on about the 12th floor. And they decided to exercise to snaps, I've got the power, <laughs> <laughs> which, which matched a resonant frequency in the building. And in the investigation, they put uh, 20 people back in this room on the 12th floor, got them to move to the frequency of I've got the power. And the 38th floor moved 10 times more than it should. God, it's it's amazing. Insane. Let's move on to your third object, which is post-it notes. Now, a lot of writers use these. What do you use them for? Like I was saying before, I've got a very logical approach to structuring a book. And so when I'm writing, I grabbed a couple at random. So there's one, okay. Donna and Alex. This one says, Donna and Alex photo, brackets, Disney, 8454. Oh, nice. You've got the code at the bottom. And there's another one with like a maths thing written on it. Six divided by two, outside one plus two. Uh -huh. And then again, you can see there's a four-digit code in the bottom. Yes. So these do two things. One is, oh, every single concept in the book has a post-it note. And so 
the first step of sitting down and writing properly, I go through all my notes, all my research, assign one concept to a post-it note, stick it up on a wall, and I also then do a bit of research around that idea. And actually, the first 12 months is just me doing this. And every single post-it note has a four-digit code, which I randomly assign. That is, that is a random four-digit code, but I've also got a database where if you put in that four-digit code, it'll bring up all the research and writing I've done around that particular concept. And then the post-it notes will end up on the wall, and then the, the book writing process is just me shuffling post-it notes around. I love the fact that although there's these incredible programs, databases, all sorts of highly sophisticated software, that when it comes down to it, we still, as humans, like to see the big picture, don't we? We like to see the wall of post-it notes. You can't see enough data. You can't see it at once. Yeah. Yes. And when it's something bigger than you can fit in your kind of... I mean, I'm, I'm not a cognitive scientist, but your short-term memory or whatever. I've got to outsource it, but I want it to be in a way I can still see it all at once. Mm. And so post-it notes on the wall. It feels but, like something from 5,000 years ago that Kashim would have understood. It's, it's exactly. Kashim would walk in and go, OK, they're not clay, but I get it. So we've got more maths and more sort of calculation power and things like that. But the human brain is still fairly Physical similar. Objects. Yeah. But then the database is also incredibly useful. And so I separately have the database, but it's directly linked to the post-it notes. That, that's kind of my big point, right? There's stuff the human brain's very good at doing, and often it's not maths, and there's stuff that maths is very good at doing for us. Mm. And by using maths, then we can do more than humans had evolved to do by, you know, using maths to go beyond what our brain does naturally. Yes, you talk a lot about databases in the book, but also about the issue of human error in databases. And one of the most interesting things are these, what they call fat finger errors, where someone just puts in a wrong number. But one of the most fascinating aspects of this in the book is the sheer amount of money that can be lost in a few seconds just by someone putting a decimal place in the wrong or, or something like that. Oh, it's insane. Yeah. So there's the fat finger errors. There's a case, this was on the Tokyo Stock Exchange. They're selling one share for you know thousands of yen they sold thousands of that share for one yen each right <laughs> they just swapped the two numbers right that's a fat finger mr classic and that's been happening um since cushion like way back mm. and so when you've got automatic trading and you've got like people are writing rules for trades and then implementing them in a system and then the system is executing the trades when certain criteria is matched that's a recipe for things to occasionally go wrong companies have lost more than they make in a year in seconds when this has gone wrong and then they've been bought out by another company and so they yeah. just cease to exist I mean, because of one programming mistake incredible it's just that, incredible i mean you say in the book there's nothing that can't be improved by an undo button it's, yeah, exactly just, just being that person that has basically lost an entire company destroyed a company because you just got two numbers the wrong way around it's the sort of stuff i just sit bolt upright in bed in the middle of the night about and the rumour for one of them was it was a single line of code that just destroyed a company. And you think, wow. And so I know one of my themes is it's fine to make mistakes in mass. Everyone makes mistakes. We're not good at it. There's also times when you really want to get it right. Mm. And that's when there's like this second order maths of how can we have logical systems 
to accept humans are going to make mistakes, how can we work with that to make sure none of those mistakes become disasters? I mean, some of them are just freak occurrences, which is going to happen. But most of them are a case where there wasn't a system in place to stop one person from doing one thing and that broke everything and the company is gone. Yeah, that really shouldn't happen. That's, no, I mean, should, it should be allowed to happen. You should, uh, as they say in the trade, sandbox your code, right? Yes. You can play around with it as long as you're in the safety of a separate sandbox. But if you want to bring it out to the real world, it needs to have been stress tested. Yes. Let's move to your last object now, which is a puzzle mug. So tell us about why you've brought that Oh, in. this is just me playing around now. So... I got the email saying, oh, could you bring in some of the things that you have around when you're writing? I was like, well, partly I drink a lot of coffee um, and partly I like puzzles. And so this is actually, I'll pass this over to you. This is a puzzle mug. You can see there it's got three houses okay, and it's got three uh, utilities. So there's mm-hmm. like the water utility, there's power and there's gas. And the challenge is, can you join all the houses to all the utilities without any of the lines crossing? So I've actually got some whiteboard markers. I'm not going to make you solve this, but if you want to have a quick play with it. Well, what will happen is because this part of my brain is so unused, I can I actually feel this muscle straining it's, it's, it's right to now. Life, right? There may now be a 20-minute silence, uh, listeners, while I um, attempt to... Because I, I, on the one hand, I stubbornly want to get this right, but on the other hand, I'm very out of practice. Okay, and that's perfect because my, my goal here is not to get uh, Katie to solve the whole puzzle, but just mm-hmm. to get her hooked on it. So, so what do you want me to she's, do? She's so, so pick one of the houses. houses. Yeah, pick one of them. Yep. The first one's easy. So you can draw a line from that house to the water. So, so I can take the pen off the mug. Yeah, yep. You can draw a line straight down, then take it off. Okay, she's okay. drawn one line and mm-hmm. one house is connected to the water. Mm-hmm. You can now draw another line connecting that house to, I don't know, the power or the gas or something else. Mm-hmm. And you need to connect each house has to have three lines coming out of it mm-hmm. to join it to all three of those utilities. Mm-hmm. But none of the lines can cross each other. Okay. So obviously you can you can draw as many lines as you want all over the place, but you need to end up joining them together. Okay. Uh, it so starts I'm off. Do this oh, first. she's going around the far side. Okay. Is this allowed? She's, yeah, absolutely. Go wherever you want. Okay. And what I like about this puzzle is partly there's no numbers involved, mm-hmm. but yet it's still maths. There's a whole area of maths which looks at the way that things link together and this kind of structure. It's kind of like geometry, but a bit more flexible. It's called yes. topology. And okay. so this is a, a classic problem called the utilities problem, if people want to check it out. And what's great is it's impossible to solve mm-hmm. if it's just on a piece of paper. But it is possible to solve if it's on a mug. Right. And so it's a really uh. nice thing to have on a mug because at the moment you're just drawing locally between the houses and the utilities. Yes. And in a second you're going you're gonna to whiteboard marker yourself into a corner. Am I? And then you'll be like, oh, I can't do it. And then you got I to need realize more mug. you need more mug. <laughs> I should have started smaller. Got, hold on, hold on. Right. I brought I brought some wipes as well. I'm wrapping get, this up now. Go. Hold on. I've done it all except just one house doesn't have power. Well, there you go. So you're I'm going to draw. What I'm going to do done. is draw a little generator of its oh, own. I love it. You've, it's gone off the grid. To one side, he's off grid. <laughs> Has he got solar solar panels? Yeah, for he's them? got he's got solar. He's he's got solar, the, wow. the, the mug on the far left has built his own solar panels. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> there you're, we are. I have not done it. it. I haven't. I have not done it within the parameters set no, by the problem. No. And eventually, <laughs> one like, line. I'm one is, line out. Does it everyone, is doable. Is everyone one line out? Yeah, yeah, it's all but the last line is what trips you up. Okay. Which is why you can do it on a mug, because you only get you get one sheet on a mug where you can put a single line under the handle mm-hmm. and then one line over the oh, handle. Oh, I see. Okay. And I didn't go around the dark side see, of the mug. See, you've got to use all the mug. You've got to right. think, think around the mug. Oh, okay. I do occasionally have little toys like this around. I, mean, I like little reminders of, you know, the fun non-number puzzle side 
of mathematics. Yeah. And there is a lot of little fun moments running through the book, actually. You know, it's not all disasters and catastrophes. And actually, we've got a clip from the book where you talk about that you love finding pictures of the crescent moon, but with a star in the middle. It's a very funny bit of the book. So um, let's have a listen to the extract where you explain why it bugs you so much. So when we look up from the Earth, we can see the disk of the moon, at least when it is a full moon. Then the moon is on the far side of the Earth from the sun and can be fully lit. Any positions in between mean that the moon is being illuminated from the side and we only see parts of it in the light. This is the stereotypical crescent moon of art and literature. But it's just a lighting effect. The moon is not actually crescent-shaped. Even when we cannot see parts of the moon, they are still physically there. During a new moon, when it is completely lit from behind, it appears only as a black, starless circle in the sky. For while we sometimes cannot see the moon, it is still there as a silhouette. Which is why I get upset when a crescent moon is shown with stars visible through the middle of it. Sesame Street is a repeat offender. In Ernie's book, I Don't Want to Live on the Moon, the cover shows stars shining right through a crescent moon. And in a sea and space segment, the moon looks surprisingly happy, despite the fact that there are stars shining through it. Okay, yes, the moon having a face and emotions is not astronomically accurate either, but there's still no excuse for teaching children inaccurate geometry. I expect more from a supposedly educational program. The only explanation I can think of is that in the extended Sesame Street universe, there are Muppet bases on the moon, and those are the dots of light we are seeing. That was Humble Pie, written and read by my guest today, Matt Parker. That had never occurred to me that when I look at a cartoon or an image of the crescent moon with a star, that of course that can never happen. There's an interesting bit about how you've had to demystify million to billion to trillion for people. Just our brains sort of want it to be a certain way, but it really isn't. Yeah, this is where a couple of years ago the UK debt went over one trillion pounds. And so they got me to go on the news and explain how big a trillion is. Because people haven't got a real sense. Million to billion feels like billion to trillion. So I did how many seconds? Great game. So one million seconds is just over 11 days away. So that's a million seconds from now. It's within a fortnight. Whereas a billion seconds is 31 years away. And I was like, whoa, that's like, that feels like a massive jump. Mm. Whereas a trillion seconds is like, over 33,000 years. It's like it's after the year 33,000. And it was like, what? And This be- did actually blow my mind when I read it. Oh, it's so crazy. Because but- you always have this idea, oh, a billion's sort of double a million and then a trillion's maybe like double a billion. And you just think, yeah, okay, I can sort of handle that. But when you put it like that, you just think, no, I really didn't, I really wasn't handling this at no. all. No, <laughs> it's because they're a thousand times bigger than each other. But our brains have, I mean, the technical phrase would be a logarithmic sense of numbers. But you've put it better where... You go a million to a billion, what is it, like double or like we feel like it's a set increase. And if you get humans who have not been through formal education, you get them to kind of like there's different ways to do experiments where you go like what is in the middle of, you know, what's halfway to 10? And we think it's five. And in fact, the experiments they do is like what's between one and nine? And five is right in the middle of one to nine. Except if people haven't had formal education, they will put three 
in the centre of one to nine. I found that fascinating. Oh, that, what? What? Yeah. Yeah. It's because if you multiply, that is the middle. Because one times three is three, and three times three is nine. Yeah. So it's the the same multiplying to go up, and so we normally view multiples as equally spaced which is not how absolute numbers work, but it is a perfectly valid way to uh, appreciate number. And so we have to learn linear numbers when we go to school, where they, they increase by equal amounts instead of multiplying by equal amounts, except that still kind of misfires with big numbers. And so, like, even if you surveyed people, was the side of the bus 350 million or billion? A lot of people, I think you'd get a mixed response, mm. but that is a big difference. That's the difference between what's spent in a week and what's spent in two decades. Like, mm-hmm. it's insane. And we just, we still, our brains misfire when we look at big numbers. And so it's a great example of you can't trust your intuition with large numbers. You need to actually sit down and do the working out and see how the numbers actually fall. Well, that is just one of the fascinating nuggets that you explained so well in the book. I found it very mind-expanding in many, many ways. It's called Humble Pie. It's by Matt Parker. And uh, thank you very much for joining us. You're too kind. Thank you very much. And just a reminder that if you haven't already, do subscribe to the Penguin Podcast using any of the podcatchers such as iTunes, Acast or Spotify on your desktop or smartphone. We're also available on your Alexa-enabled device. And if you like what you hear, please do share, rate and review the Penguin Podcast. We'd love to know what you think. If you enjoyed this episode, Matt Parker also features in Domestic Science, the audiobook edition of the much-loved BBC Radio 4 comedy series, which also stars Helen Arney and Steve Mould. They use stand-up, songs and experiments to investigate the world around us with a level of scientific accuracy not normally found in your average comedy series. I'm Helen Arney, I've got a physics degree, a ukulele and I have actually worked at CERN. It's comedy night! <laughs> I'm Matt Parker and I'm the UK's premier stand-up mathematician. I've risen to the top of an industry consisting only of myself. <laughs> And I'm Steve Mould, scientist for hire at the BBC. My favourite gig was Blue Peter, where I tried to levitate the tortoise with electromagnets. (laughs) They haven't invited me back. Domestic Science is available to download as an audiobook now.